0: This is what the word of God says, Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not this creation, he entered once for all into holy places, not by means of blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purifying our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance." "...since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people... He took the blood of calves and goats and with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. Then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly awaiting him. The word of the Lord. guys can be seated.
1: So Dave just read from the book of Hebrews, which is where we're spending our Christmas sermon series entitled, Jesus is Better. Now, as you hear that title, as you read that title, you might think, better than what? The title doesn't really say. It could be better than anything. Jesus is better than what? So first there's the cop-out answer, right? The cop-out answer is what? Jesus is better than what? everything right like hey he's better than everything hey name something okay you name it and i say okay guess what jesus is better than that let's close in prayer father in heaven we all just go home so that would be lame so i find that i don't change very much in my own life in fuzzy land that ambiguity is not helpful for me um Change doesn't happen. I say that in counseling a lot. Um, You know, we don't go to counselees who come uh, for us for counseling and say, okay, well, then just like stop sinning, right? Just stop doing that which is wrong and do more of that which is right. Go on now. Be warm and be filled. That's, That's not helpful, right? Because change doesn't happen in fuzzy land. In fact, I would say that many or most of the counseling cases that I've been involved with involve people who to some degree would rather not sin than sin. Uh, Most of them. But sometimes we find that we get stuck in some way, shape, or form, and that's probably something we all can relate to. We've all been stuck. We've all found ourselves just spinning our wheels, stuck in the mud as it would be as far as our walk with Christ is concerned. And sometimes the hardest growth points for me in life have been when I can't specifically identify where I'm weak or where I'm off. I mean, I know I'm off, I know something's not right, but I can't specifically fix it or grow or change if I don't know what's specifically wrong. It's like all of a sudden your car starts making a a funny noise, right? You know something's wrong, but unless you know more about cars than I do, which you probably do if you're breathing then you won't know, is it the tire, is it the engine, is it an oil thing, is it a transmission thing? There's just a so you take it to somebody who will know and says, here's what it is, here's why it's making that sound, here's what you need to do. Otherwise, you could have a transmission issue and you're rotating the tires, right? And that's not super helpful. So you take it to a friend or a mechanic who knows and can get more specific and say, it's this, it's this. And so today, looking at Hebrews 9 and talking about the hope that God gives us and the fact that he sustains our hope through the baby born on Christmas Day and that he's better than everything, but we're specifically looking at the fact that Jesus is better than the old covenant and that the new covenant is not just new, but it's actually new and better. That's what the word of God tells us. Now, this is a fairly deep well to draw from and for many reasons, but chiefly because The Old Covenant was established by who? Who established the Old Covenant? God, right? And so here's something we need to consider. How can something made by God be improved upon, right? How can something established by God be improved upon? Can God become better? Can he improve upon himself? Is there like a God 2.0? Can God upgrade? Like, is that a thing? Jesus himself tells us that nothing is impossible for God, Matthew 19 and verse 26, but for God to improve upon himself, for his new covenant to be better than the old covenant, does that mean that God was less then and he is more now? Or was he good then but better now? If the perfect has been improved upon, it wasn't always perfect perfect, and so down the rabbit hole we go, right? Can God build a rock that is too heavy for himself to lift it? If God is love and love is blind, is Stevie Wonder God? I mean, we could just go on and on and on and on and just think about these things, but it's really not too helpful. And so before we get to our first point, a note about the old covenant, the old covenant. I want to explain to you, just give you a little primer on what we're referring to when we say the old covenant so you understand what is being referred to both in the book of Hebrews and both in our sermon today. So the Old Covenant was, we'll say this, a conditional or bilateral agreement between God and his people, the Israelites, whereby they were required to obey him and keep the law, and in return he protected and blessed them. That's just a very quick definition of what the Old Covenant consisted of. It required repeated, sometimes daily sacrifices of animals, For sin, and only the high priest could enter the most holy place where God's presence dwelt, and that only once a year. The Old Covenant was a set of external regulations applying until the time of that which is the New Covenant. In the Old Covenant, God also established that the way to atone for sin is through the shedding of blood. And Dave read that, and I want to call your attention to that once again. So look in your Bibles at Hebrews chapter 9 and look at verse 22. In Hebrews nine and verse twenty-two, which David read earlier, it says this: "Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins." So there it is. God establishing that the way to atone for sin would have to be through the shedding of blood. One purpose of the old covenant was to make it clear, like so clear absolutely crystal clear that no man is righteous before God and that no one can save himself. When we read about this elsewhere, right? In the book of Romans chapter 3, it says, there is none that are righteous. No, not one. Uh, verse 23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Before the new covenant came, we were, uh, according to the book of Galatians, held in custody under the law. Uh, God's people were stuck In the old covenant, relying on a sacrificial system that looked forward to the coming of Christ and justification by faith. But in the new covenant, things change, and God becomes this proactive and unconditional source of salvation and blessing for all who would believe. In the new covenant, we read about this in Romans 5, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so it's new, and it's different, and it was all part of God's plan to begin with. But that's why God had in mind, from the very beginning, a new and better covenant that would be inaugurated, if you will, with the birth of His Son, Jesus Christ, and the death, burial, and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want you to look a little further back from where David read. Look in in Hebrews 9, most of our time is going to be spent from verses 11 through 28, And I would just like you to look at verse 10. So look at Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10 while I call something to your attention from the Word of God. Oh, just look back to verse 9. I hate starting mid-sentence. So Hebrews chapter 9, verse 9 says this. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Do you see that? Cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink And various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until the time of Reformation. Now, that's not the Protestant Reformation. That's just the time of a change from the old to the new. So this was something that, again, at the end of verse 9, cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. And there it is. That's actually our first point that's in your outline today. Uh, Number one, we have hope because Jesus freed us from guilt, freed us from guilt. You see, you need to understand that under the old covenant, that sense of guilt that a believer would have had remained. Because the old covenant was never intended to remove sin, but actually to remind us of sin. So that feeling of guilt remained. If a sin was committed, a sacrifice had to be made. And the sacrifice would have to be made with an animal. And so when you messed up, Fido paid and paid dearly, right? So you would have to bring an animal to the priest who would then sacrifice this animal. Oftentimes, especially for Passover, you're required to spend some time with this animal, get to know this animal, grow a bond with this animal. Then you're to give this animal away to be sacrificed as a picture of a sin offering for you and for me. And you would have to do that, and you would have to do that once, You'd have to do it repeatedly and repeatedly and repeatedly, over and over and over again. And that reminds you that God has high, high standards, and you fell short, and that your sin affects your relationships with God. But its effect was further reaching because the whole family, right, was there watching Fido pay the price For what you did when you stubbed your toe in the expletive that you shouted out. Or whatever sin you had committed that needed to be atoned for. But it didn't happen just once. It happened to happen over and over and over again. But the old covenant was never intended to remove sin. But to remind us of sin. And to remind us of the high price that had to be paid because a sin was committed. That without the shedding of blood there is no remission of sins. But the feeling of guilt remained even after Fido bit the bullet. Why? Because you knew that you were not bringing forward a perfect offering, right? I mean, you saw Fido, like, drag his butt on the carpet and then lick it earlier. You know that that spotless lamb is not truly spotless because there is that one little spot on the upper left thigh, that, but it's as spotless as we can get, so you gave it. But you understand that, but that that lamb vomited on the way to the sacrifice. Like, this is not the perfect lamb. Like, you were constantly reminded that this was not legit. This was not enough. This was pointing to something else. So I've been thinking of Christmas movies, okay? And when I think of Christmas movies, I think of Home Alone. Okay, we're all familiar with Home Alone. Raise your hand. You're familiar with Home Alone. Okay, right. You're not raised under a rock. So you're familiar with Home Alone. And there's this time when Macaulay Culkin, earlier in the movie, he... um, uh, if you remember, there's a spill that takes place, right? And as a result of that spill, they're wiping it up and they take these, uh, the, the tickets and they throw them by accident into the trash. It's really fast and you see it. And that's how later on this family that um, has the money to take all of these kids to Paris for Christmas like hashtag just because forgets and does a miscount and somehow leaves poor Kevin at home and he is therefore home. Alone, right? But you might remember that in that time of wiping up, that there's one uncle, right? Who would, He's wiping up his trousers. And then he, the, the camera just comes up and it looks at his face and he looks down at Kevin and he says what? Say it with me. One, two, three. Very good. Look what you did, you little jerk, right? Look what you did, you little jerk. And then later on in the movie, um... Uh, Kevin is reminded of that as he's flashing back towards like all the things that his that his siblings said. Then his older brother goes, "Kevin, I want to feed you to my tarantula," which you never actually see happen. But you're like, "Wow, I guess that actually happened." And then it fl- he flashes back to his uncle saying, "Look what you did, you little jerk." And um, so, so here's a little bit of a sidestep. I'm t- this. I'll, I'll tie this in. Um, so I use this line, that line, uh, in my parenting with my kids. I do. I do. They've seen the movie, uh, so it's not uncommon for like one of them if they spill something. I promise. Look, All right, so you have to see what I'm seeing right now. Most of you think this is funny. Six of you are like this, like super uncomfortable. You might be guests. I get it. You're like, this guy is dysfunctional. Okay, but Bob, I'm just telling you the truth. So we've seen the movie. So sometimes my kids will spill something and they'll, or or something will happen. It's usually at a time where they're wondering like, is this really bad? Is this really good? Or they've had it. So I will look at them literally. I will look at my kids and say, look what you did, you little jerk. And they'll usually grin and remember the movie and smile. Um, But on the way here today, on the way here today, I told Justin, I was like, hey, I'm going to, I'm going to talk about Home Alone and the look what you did, you little jerk, line in my sermon. And he said, he said, remember the time I spilled something and you said that to me in front of people? (laughs) And some people just didn't get it. So it's really awkward if you say it in front of people who haven't seen the movie or haven't remembered the movie and they just think that you're like legitimately calling your son a jerk (laughs) really makes an awkward and i don't remember i remember like we were in i don't know if we're in like a buffet but justin spilled something and i just said look what you did you little jerk and people were like (laughs) it was not not cool look what you did you little jerk that's a line that i use you don't have to use it in your parenting i don't judge we all parent differently Um, I think the old covenant can basically be summed up in its effect in that line look what you did look how much it cost look at the sin look at the price we're back again really? wow Joe, we're back here sacrifice? wow Susie, whoa back to the altar again? really? really? Reset. Look what you did, you little jerk. Look look how you've sinned. Look how you've fallen short. Look how unholy you are. Look at the price that has to be paid. Look what you did, you little jerk. Constantly, over and over and over again. I don't think people brought Fido to the altar to be sacrificed and then went home skipping and smiling, looking at each other and saying, God loves me. If they did, that's great. There's nothing that happened during that time that would have reminded you of that. Right? You're looking back and saying, oh, it's a picture of what Jesus did on the cross. You can tie it all together and it's like super pretty. But don't forget, these people are like 27 books shy of a New Testament. Right? So they're just looking forward at something that they don't know what exactly will happen. They know that God's going to send a Messiah. Probably this is going to picture something. It's pointing forward to something, but they don't know what it's pointing forward to. You and I know what it's pointing back to. And that's pretty cool. And we're like, oh, wow, it's a picture of what God would do in Christ. It's really exciting. I just have to be honest with you. I think precious few Old Testament believers were able to connect the dots to something that they had never seen before. Look what you did, you little jerk. And so every time you sin, you go back and you take another sacrifice and you kill another animal, another animal, and you re-sacrifice over and over and over again. It doesn't remove sin, but it reminds you, look what you did. Look how much it cost. Look where you fell short. I mean, look one chapter later in Hebrews chapter 10. Just turn there. Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 3. But in these sacrifices, say it, there is a what? Louder. There is a what? Reminder of sins. Every year. Every year. Merry Christmas. Every year, there's a reminder of sins. Look at the next verse, verse 4. For it is what? It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Never was the intention of God to remove sins through killing Fido. But it was supposed to be a reminder. And I think it would have worked. But that brings us to our first point. We have hope because Jesus freed us from guilt. See, I don't think Old Testament believers ever experienced that. That feeling of guilt Being removed because you all went and you took Fido and you sacrificed an animal and then you knew it wouldn't be long until you're back again because you're going to jack it up or someone else is going to jack it up and you're going to have to atone for sins again. You can't draw near to God. You have to give this sacrifice to a priest who could, but once a year, go into the most holy place and atone for the sins of his people. But there wouldn't be this, oh, wow, am I relieved. That was great. So glad we got to do that as a family. Let's go home. We'll be back soon. No, it's just look what you did, right? Sure, it's awkward having the priest take the animal. Wow, Dan, again, huh? Okay. The old covenant spoke clearly and loudly of God's holiness and our lack of holiness, of God's perfection and our sin. Did it remove our sin? No but it was like a super helpful effective reminder of our sin. And so the reminder of sin worked well and therefore the feeling of guilt remained on the people of God. Look what you did, you little jerk. Look look what you've done. What about you? Has guilt and shame ever had just an Overwhelming presence in your life. what's that like? Like just over and over and over again, the memory of what you did, the fact that it actually happened, that you can't go back in time and change it, and that you can never do it again, but you'll never bat a thousand, right? You'll never that record shot. And you're sorry you did it and you've been forgiven, but you just can't look what you did, you little jerk. You look in the word of God and instead of seeing the goodness of God and the hope of the gospel, all you see is what you did. Look what you did. You're like, I I think, it. look what I did. It doesn't say that in here, but that's all you see. And you stand and look at yourself in the mirror in the bathroom as you're getting ready for your day or before you retire for the night. And all you can think about is, look what you did, you little jerk. Have you ever experienced something like that? See, I'm convinced one of our greatest enemies in life is the overwhelming, paralyzing sense that comes with guilt and shame. It has no place in our lives because Jesus is better than our sin, because Jesus died once and for all and doesn't need to be sacrificed again, and you yourself don't need to sacrifice yourself for your sins because that wouldn't help anyway, but you don't need to do it because Jesus Christ died for sinners like you and like me, and yet still we can't help it by just being finite, fickle people who just constantly say, look what you did, you little jerk. I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I thought that. And you start thinking of other people in your life who you know love Jesus. And you say, I can't, I, I, there's no way Samuel would ever do that. He's a sinner, but he wouldn't. He would never do that. There's no. There's no way Kelly would ever think that. I mean, I'm sure she falls short in other areas, but wow. There's no way this would. You start naming different people. I bet Isaac never struggled with this. I bet Sam never struggled with that. I bet this person never thought that. No husband ever thinks this about his. And you just start doing the comparison thing, and it just comes back to look what you did, you little jerk. One of our greatest most paralyzing enemies in life is guilt and shame. God gives us consciences to make us aware of sin, and our consciences are very effective at doing that. But you know what's paralyzing? When we become paralyzed by being aware of sin and feel as if there's nothing we can do about it because it's in the past. I can't click undo, right? Like, control Z doesn't work in life. That was the sense that Old Testament believers had when they sinned. Fido paid the price, but you knew Fido wasn't the perfect sacrifice that God, there's probably always something like something. I know we're doing this, but doesn't something feel just a little, I feel like this isn't perfect, this sacrifice. Like I know we're doing what God wants us to do, but something's just off. And did it not take last time over and over and over and over and over again? So sacrificing Fido was effective in reminding you of sin, but not removing your sin, and so the feeling of guilt remained. You could see it, right? You were thinking about it. You could hear and watch Fido die right before your eyes, and it, there's a look what you did, you little jerk, right? reminder right there. But nothing stunts our growth like guilt and shame. Nothing. You don't read, you don't pray, you feel unworthy, you feel inadequate because you come to God during your time of wanting to commune with Him and read the Word, and you just think, yeah, but He knows what I've, He saw what I've done. Then He knows that I hid it, and He knows that I've confessed it, but it wasn't, but it took me so long, and I know He died for it, but He's just, I just, He just knows, and I'm not perfect, and it's so, I just feel so ashamed. Look what you did, you little jerk, and that stagnates your growth, and therefore, you Feel funny coming before the Word of God or coming before God in prayer because you just pray these routine prayers for other people. But are you really accepted? Are you really loved? I think God's cool with me, but it's still kind of awkward. Nothing stunts growth like guilt and shame. Because guilt and shame tell you those lies that you can't come before God as you are, especially after what you did, especially after what you thought Nothing stunts growth like guilt and shame. Nothing stagnates us in our serving like guilt and shame. Nothing. I had a conversation some, uh, once with someone who was not coming forward to serve in a certain capacity because of a sin that he had committed 20 years prior. 20 years he had repented, he had confessed to God, he had confessed to those who were affected, he had turned his life around. No presence of this sin in this person's life at all. In fact, you would never even suspect, like there's no evidence that this was a sin in this person's life, but it was 20 years ago. And if you asked him, he would have said, yes, I know that I know that Christ died for my sins. I'm not even hesitant about the fact that I know I'm going to heaven. Jesus paid it all. But there's a little bit of, look what you did, you little jerk, because he said, yeah, but in light of what I did, I certainly couldn't serve in that way, lead in this way. Look what you did, you little jerk. And so guilt and shame stagnate our serving. Nobody associated this man with that sin. God didn't think of him and this sin together. Nobody in his life associated him with that sin. But you know who associated him with that sin? He did. That constant little recording in his mind, look what you did, you little jerk. Because think about it. The sin you committed usually isn't nearly as paralyzing as its memory. The the action that was committed, sometimes it can have lifelong consequences. But when we're talking about guilt and shame in your own mind and heart, the look what you did, you little jerk, that line playing over and over again, usually it's that line that is more paralyzing than whatever the sin was in the past. Guilt and shame is powerful the memory of our sin playing it over and over again that's where the rubber really meets the road or you might say where the rubber fails to meet the road right because there's no we're not moving we're not moving beyond it we're completely obsessed with it we're focusing on it the sin is bad but the memory the guilt and the shame can paralyze even the strongest of believers if they let it and i think satan loves it i think he loves it we're told in scripture that satan is the accuser of the brethren right? He's the accuser of the brethren. He would love to do things to stop you, but he's kind of like, wow, I don't have to worry about Peter. He's stopping himself. That's awesome. I can move on to someone else. He's stuck in his own. Look what you did, you little, just as sweet. As long as he repeats that to himself, there's very little he's going to do for the kingdom of God. I'm going to move on to someone else. Like it's a pretty sweet deal for him. And if you continue to feel guilty for forgiven sins, you are hearing The voice of your own sinful nature or the voice of the enemy, not the Holy Spirit, because Satan is a liar. And so what I wanted to call our attention to 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 today is four things. It's in your outline, four things God does with our sin to free us from guilt and shame. And you'll notice all of these are Old Testament verses looking forward to what would be depicted and fully illustrated in the New Testament because of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, We have the privilege of looking back on them and being able to see it just a little more clearly as we read the Old Testament through the lens of the new. So that's what I want to do right now. Four things God does with our sin to free us from guilt and shame. The first is he places them out of sight. He no longer sees them. Okay, now it should also be said, and we'll see this in a moment, that God has not forgotten our sin. Nor should you forgive other people when you forget their sin. Sin. Because every time you try to forget it, what do you do? You tend to? Remember it. Today I'm going to really focus on not remembering what John did for me. Uh, OK, How's that going? Right? Nobody think about a pink hippo. You've all felt. So every time you try not to think about it, so this is all opportunities for God for us to see how God will actively choose to forgive us. It's not that He doesn't know our sins. I don't know what you're talking about, Steve. What do you mean you've sinned in that way? I'm God. Mark, why do you bring this sin up? I don't, please, please. Like, look at your neighbor and say, come on. Right? Like, that's not how God, God operates. So it's him choosing not to remember these sins against you. So first one is out of sight. He no longer sees them. Isaiah 38 and verse 17. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins, where? Behind your back. Isn't that cool? What a cool word picture. God, who is ever moving forward, not looking back, has taken your sins, whatever they look like, and cast them behind his back. And he's like, moving on. Moving forward. That which you've done, that which you've thought, that which you've sinned, I have cast them behind my back. They're no longer in front of me. I'm not focusing on them. I'm not remembering them. I am moving on. Secondly, he places them out of mind. He chooses not to remember them. Here's a great illustration of that. Jeremiah 31 and verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. How many of you have ever misplaced something? Just raise your hand. you have ever, ever misplaced something? Keep your hand up. All right, the others, look around, are lying. Those with the hands down are lying in church to a pastor on a Sunday during the Christmas season. You have to put your hand up. Put your hand up. You've misplaced something. I just want you to keep your hand up if you've ever misplaced something intentionally. Like, you can't misplace something intentionally. We'll talk afterwards. You probably don't mean... I do not think it means the way you think it means. So, if you've misplaced something, you have forgotten where you've put it. Even if you put it someplace so you would forget where you put it, that was still intentionally and you were placing it there so that you would have, but misplacing it means, oh, what did I do? With, where are my keys? I thought they are in my, oh, they're not in this jacket. Maybe they're on the table. Oh, they're not on the table. Maybe they're on my desk. We don't forget things intentionally. So here in Jeremiah 31, 34 in your outline, you see that God doesn't promise to forget, but he promises to intentionally remember our sins no more. So I don't have to Hope and pray one day that I don't, that I I just kind of forget what Jackie did, right? Or I just kind of forget what so and so did, or forget what my wife did, or forget what my kids did. I can today forgive them and choose to not associate them with that sin. But don't you remember it? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, it just happened yesterday. Of course I do, but I'm just not going to count it against them. Four things God does with our sin to free us from guilt and shame. He places them out of sight. He places them out of mind. And he places them out of reach. He places them underfoot, underwater, and they're gone forever. I love this picture in Micah 7 and verse 19. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So our family recently had the opportunity. We were very blessed. We took a family vacation and we took a cruise together. Yeah, like, had a blast. Sarah and I have gone on cruises before as a couple. This is the first time we took the kids. We had a blast. We did all the things that Sarah and I never do when we're on the ship because we do none of the things because we just find a happy little place that's nice and quiet, and we lay there, and that's home for like eight days. This time, we walked by that place and looked at where we used to spend our time and stayed where all the action was, with all the kids, we had a blast. It was a, a really, really fun time. Real, who doesn't need soft serve at like 9 a.m., right? It's, it's dessert time somewhere. So, so the kids just loved it. We, had, we were very, very blessed. Uh, I'm a geek, and so in your stateroom, uh, there's always a channel that shows you information about your cruise that you don't really get, but you think is cool to, to, to watch. Wow, look how many nautical miles we've traveled since we left the port two days ago. That number's going up. <laughs> I don't know what a nautical mile is. I don't know how, I don't know what that is. Um, oh, look at the latitude and longitude. Look at us, yeah, that's changing. Like, I, I look at this stuff all the time. But literally, I'm not even, ask Sarah. Like, is the first channel I turn to. I get back to the state and I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Time at, like, uh, time at origin. Same as time right now. Just useless information. And then one of the things though, that that's kind of cool is sea depth. Sea depth at present position. That's kind of cool. It's like, wow, 3,600 feet. It's a long way down. <laughs> 6,800 feet. I think, wow, 5,280 feet in a mile. It's more than a mile deep. 16,000 feet deep. 21,000 feet deep. And we have this word picture given to us in Micah 7 and verse 19 that he will cast all our sins into what? The depths of the sea. Not just onto the water. They're kind of like floating, right? Like seaweed. This is my impression of seaweed. It's pretty accurate. All the way into the what? Into the depths of the sea. Where people could never go. No one could ever survive. It could never be found. What a picture. That's what God actively does with our sins. And yet we're strapping on oxygen going to find them. He places them out of sight, out of mind, out of, well out of reach, and also out of existence. They're, they're blotted out forever. Isaiah 43 and verse 25, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And again, I will not remember your sins. In our text today, Hebrews 9, uh, look at verses 13 and following. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled uh, persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more, right, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself, like, truly without blemish to God, purify what? Our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The new covenant is better. Jesus is better because he frees our consciences from guilt. Something no Old Testament believer ever had or experienced. More than just wiping up the outside, checking the box. Good, you did that with Fido. Thanks, we'll probably see you again soon. Right, more than just wiping up the outside, he makes us clean on the inside by purifying our hearts. And that's why we can draw, not far, but near to God near to God, not this holy place that only the priest can go into once a year and he'll go in on your behalf and tell God hi for you. We don't have to do that anymore. Hebrews 10, look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and following. Therefore, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw what? near let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water look at those words confidence living clean uh, near assurance washed jesus is better We have hope because Jesus freed us from, yes, sin, but also from the guilt, the guilt that we feel about our sin. We don't have to feel that anymore if we believe in Jesus Christ and understand what he did for us. Moving on, point number two, we have hope because Jesus changed the will to the way. You say, I see what you did there. That's cute. Well, it's from the text. So Hebrews 9, look at verse 16. Hebrews 9, look at verse 16. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force, as long as the one who made it is alive. So the new covenant in Christ is better because he has changed that which was just a lifeless will to something that we've benefited from. And he could only do that by his death. So this is hard to expound upon because it's literally just so straightforward. I have a will. Okay, Sarah and I have wills. We've filled them out. Uh, they are just documents. We've done that through our attorney years ago. And uh, they're just documents that literally mean nothing until I what? Until I die, right? Then those who are listed as beneficiaries actually benefit. But for now, and that's, that's the time when the kids will get both, both my 18-year-old Corolla. And my eight-year-old minivan, okay? So that's the time when they get both, not one, but both of those things, and there's four of them. So that, that's, that's the time where they benefit from that which is listed within that will. But not until I die. Not until I die. And the same thing is the case with the old, co- with the old covenant and the new covenant. It's pretty straightforward, Before the person dies, the will is just a piece of paper, and those who are listed as beneficiaries don't benefit from it as long as the person is alive. But here's what you have to understand. In all likelihood, all things being equal, my kids will, in their lifetime, benefit from the will, right? All things being equal, I'll probably die before them, and they'll benefit from it. The people of God, for some 4,000 years... Generation after generation after generation had this will, right? This promise that God was going to literally send a Messiah who would atone for their sins. But people were born, lived a full life, and died. Born, lived a full life, and died. Never saw it. Never saw the benefit of it. Never understood exactly what it meant in real life so that they could look back upon it. The people of God knew of the will. This promise of how God would bless his people after this perfect, spotless Messiah, Lamb of God would die and take away the sins of the world. But they lived and died without ever benefiting from it in this life. Now, sidestep. Did Old Testament believers go to heaven? Could they be saved? And the answer was absolutely. Because they're looking forward to what we look back upon. But people have always been saved by faith. Okay, so Old Testament believers have faith that God would atone for their sins. They're looking forward to it. New Testament believers, that's people like you and me, we look back on the fact that God would atone for our sins. And the only difference is we get to look back on that which was done. Old Testament believers had to look forward on that which would one day happen. Okay? That takes a lot of faith. We at least have a record. We at least have something to look back upon and say, wow, this is this is legit. This is Look, I can see the promise. I can see the promise fulfilled. We at least have history of people who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That's not going to bring our faith full circle, but it's like, wow, that's encouraging. Other people have had this same faith. Other people have believed the gospel to be true, but Old Testament believers would look forward to that, but yet never actually saw it because the will only takes effect when somebody dies. And we're probably talking about hundreds of people who actually saw Jesus die, right, at the most? Like how many people could see Jesus die in three hours of hanging on the cross? Maybe hundreds, maybe 1,000, thousand, I don't know. Not, not that many in the billions of people who, who, who would be born and live and die on God's green earth. Old Testament believers and New Testament believers alike didn't see the sin atoned for by the perfect spotless Lamb of God. But we have a record we have reason to believe it happened, and we have thousands of years of Christians who, like us, believe that it happened as well. Old Testament believers were saved by grace through faith that it would one day happen, but that's all they had to go on. No record of it happening. No gospel to read, but they enjoyed the same benefits of heaven because of faith, just like you and I do. They had their faith in the will. We have our faith in more than the will. We've seen the will be made right, and to be, and we've benefited from it because we know that Jesus has died. Remember what we say last week. Jesus was born to what? He was born to die. And his death was the only way to inherit the forgiveness God has for us. And that's why we read in passages like John 14 and verse 6 where Jesus says, I am not the will, but I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. And finally, as we close, the final point, we have hope Because Jesus is our sufficient substitute, dying once for sinners like us. Now, we briefly looked at this text last week, Hebrews 9 and verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Do you remember that? We looked at this last week. So everyone has this appointment with death. That's been made for us. That God has assigned the length of our lives. And yet it's the only appointment that we all have. We don't know when it is, but we will not be late. Because we have an appointment with death that God has predetermined. And so it is appointed that we will die. That goes without saying. We will die. Jesus also had an appointment with death. Right? But unlike all other people, he knew the day. He knew the hour. He knew the means by which he would die. He knew exactly what would happen. And unlike all other people, Jesus didn't face the judgment that the writer of Hebrews talks about in verse 27. But instead, Jesus bore the wrath, the anger of God, the judgment of God for people like you and like me. So that you and I wouldn't have to bear it ourselves. And so Jesus had an appointment with death. And then Jesus absorbed blow after bloody blow from God the Father himself as he poured out his wrath on Jesus for sinners like Peter and like Mark and like Anya and like Corinne and like Nicole and like Steve and for sinners like you and like me. He absorbed that wrath didn't face judgment for his own life, but faced judgment for my life. The old covenant required repeated sacrifices to be made as a constant reminder of the people's sin. Hebrews 9 of verse 28, look at it. It says that Christ, having been offered how many times? Once. Bore the sins of many. That's it. Once and for all. Which means Jesus is what? Jesus is better. The old covenant was all outward, all external, but did nothing for the hearts and minds of the believers. Jesus bears the weight of our sins on the cross under the new covenant and cleanses us from fear of death and judgment, wiping away the guilt that would otherwise remain in our hearts and minds without him, which means that Jesus again is better. And 1 Peter 3 and verse 18 reminds us of this. It's in your outline. For Christ also suffered, what? Once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So I want to call those who are uh, helping out with communion, if you would come forward at this time. I want to call attention... Uh, to something here for the rest of us today. We're about to celebrate this reality of the new covenant in a way that God has ordained for us through communion. And if you are a believer, if you have placed your faith and trust in Christ, you have no need to own the guilt that you may be owning right now. Because Jesus died what? Once for the sins of many, you beating yourself up is unnecessary. You crucifying yourself for your sins is unnecessary and quite frankly unhelpful because Jesus Christ has died for sinners like you and like me. So we celebrate that today, right? We eat to remember that. We drink to that joyful proclamation of Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in which we've put our faith and our trust. If that's you, I would invite you to ask God to remove that sense of guilt that you're wrestling with. Remove that, look what you did, you little jerk. May, may that line have only a presence in a movie and never a presence in the real that you play in your mind and your heart on your life forever. But some of you feel guilt rightly. You feel guilt because your guilt remains. Because you're not a believer and you're aware of your sin. Your conscience bears witness against you. You're aware of what you've done, of what you've thought, and you wrestle with guilt because your guilt remains. And that's God's mechanism of making you aware of your sin and your need for a Savior. And I want to invite you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, to trust that what he did on the cross was sufficient for your sins, and to have your sin and the guilt that remains of your sin removed forever. That is the good news of the gospel that I would invite you to partake of, to believe on Jesus so that you might be saved. But this communion celebration is for those of us who do believe. Whether you've believed for an hour, you've believed for 20 years, you believe for a minute, it's for people who do believe. If you don't believe, let the plate pass and think about the things that we've spoken about today and watch those who do believe worship their Lord and Savior in remembrance and in celebration. Father, we come before you grateful for the good news of the new covenant of grace. And pray, Lord, that you would cause us to reflect upon that with great rejoicing and celebration today as we eat the bread and take the cup and proclaim your, uh, your son, our Lord's death, until he comes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.